Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, it's very nice for me as I'm in the teaching role to see people. So if that can work for you, uh, it's nice to see people as I as I speak. So I want to continue from last time the exploration of what I think is a really crucial dimension of our practice, which is the connection of loving kindness or metta and the other heart practices like compassion and joy. What's the connection of that? with clear seeing, with mindfulness, with wisdom. And I started to explore that last week. It was very much uh, a theme that was inspired by my own uh, teaching of a one-week meta retreat that finished exactly two weeks ago. And so my, my talk theme and my explorations came out of my teaching and also very much out of my own uh, practice. Because when I teach, I like to practice a lot. So I was practicing about six uh, meditation sessions a day when I was teaching. And it really um, was mostly practicing radiating metta and then trying to bring that into my teaching. Not a bad job where I can practice radiating metta during my work. I wish you have some of that. We'll talk about that because radiating metta, when, you, when it gets well-developed, can be a beautiful practice for meetings, for being on public transportation, maybe even for driving. I do it just looking outside, being with the trees, being with the plants, the people, but here it was, I was teaching, doing radiating metta, and then later people offered me financial support for doing this. Amazing. Not a bad gig, as they say. <laughs> and so uh, my inspiration came out of that, and I was noticing how awareness was very infused with metta. Often in our daily lives, we may find that awareness feels a little more cognitive, not so much connect with the heart. That's been probably my predominant experience in my life. Maybe similar, maybe with mindfulness and with uh, uh, even just how we see the world, how we see others. And so this theme of integrating the quality of the kind heart, we could even say of love, with our clear seeing is a really, really crucial area. And as I'll suggest, and I started to go into this last time, it also points to a very powerful dimension of what we might even call cultural and social healing. Because there are long-term roots uh, certainly in Western tradition and dominant Western traditions going back 2,500 years to separate out 
what we sometimes call the mind or reason or rationality, to separate that out from love and the heart. And I'll talk about that in a little while, some of, some of, those, uh, some of those roots. And so many of us, meanwhile, in the last week, there was an invitation to try to bring metta more into one's lives. How many people followed that some? You know, we're working with bringing metta some into daily life and doing the practice more. So a number of you, a number of you were, were doing that in conversations, taking a walk or, or driving. So what I want to do in the, in the talk and then we'll have discussion after that, is to take some of what I brought up last time, but go quite a bit further. And so I'll talk some about some of the tendencies just in what we sometimes call Western culture or Western society, which, you know, even if we, uh, you know, go back ancestrally, maybe it wasn't part of who we were a few generations ago, uh, for many of us it is now, and, and certainly is the, in the mainstream culture. Uh, there's a separation between the mind and even of wisdom and of uh, the heart, love, kindness. You know, that, and I'll, in a moment I'll talk in more depth about what that looks like, the roots of it. And then I'll also talk about how Maybe surprisingly, in the Buddhist tradition, particularly the way of practicing metta that we've inherited, and that is the main ways of practicing metta in the West, there actually is a separation between metta and wisdom. It might be surprising to hear, but that's it's there. It comes... And I'll, I'll go into a lot more depth about where that comes from and why it is. And yet there also are very important places in the Buddhist tradition, I think in other traditions, where it's actually very crucial to connect the kind heart, love, metta, compassion with wisdom. And so I'll try to point to a number of different places where we can find inspiration for that connection. And then in the last part of the talk, I'll ask, what are the implications of this different understanding for how we practice day to day? For how we practice in our lives, both in our formal meditation and in our um, in our informal meditation, our application of all this to our daily lives. So this is ambitious. Could be a book on this. Hasn't been written yet. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to just do a talk's worth today. Okay, and then, we'll, and then we can talk together about it. Actually, Carlita and I were talking before we, we came on for everyone, we were talking about how the roots of splitting off the mind and the heart and emotions 
goes back a long way. Goes back socially and culturally a long way in Western tradition. We go back to the Greeks and Plato, following with Aristotle. With Plato, there is a threefold distinction of the constituents of our, of our nature. There's reason and the mind, there are the emotions, and there's the body. And these are distinct. And Plato thought that the most important and highest dimension is that of reason and thought. That can get to truth, he thought. And I should say that some of this, there also was a more contemplative dimension of thinking. It wasn't just, uh, you know, ordinary thinking. There was a dimension which was carried by the philosophical traditions you know, on up to the present, where there was a kind of intuitive knowing that was linked with reason, but it wasn't the ordinary sense of reason and rationality. It could be almost a meditative or contemplative way of seeing clearly. So I want to add that. But still, the emotions were taken as secondary. They were taken as, at best, supports for the development of reason or this highest dimension of our being. And then, especially in the Greeks, the body was a problem. And again, that, you know, that sort of way of valuing the different parts of our experience has gone forward into the present time. And it's a deep part of our conditioning. <clears throat> you know, and um, I think it was actually, some of it was questioned <clears throat> at times by the religious traditions, even, you know, as we find <clears throat> <clears throat> as we find Judaism <clears throat> and Christianity. I remember a passage that I read from the Jewish Talmud, which says, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. That sounds a little different, doesn't it? There's a connection of wisdom and kindness. And then again, as, we, as probably many of us or most of us know in the Christian tradition, the teachings of Jesus, a very, very central role for love, which we don't find in the uh, philosophical traditions in the same way, with some exceptions. We, if we do a fast forward up until the modern period, starting a few centuries ago, we also have a very clear distinction between the value of thinking and reason of ration, and rationality and the rest of our experience. And the aspiration, this starts with philosophers like Descartes, but goes forward. <clears throat> Do you remember Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, right? 
thinking is paramount. And this was connected with the rise of science. Scientific knowing has to be separated from the emotions, right? Separated from the impulses of the body. And so this becomes the model that generates the modern Western world. It's the framework behind the rise of science. And probably most or all of us can reflect on how this manifested in our own lives, how we receive the conditioning to value the mind, to separate out the mind at times, or very often from motions. Think of education that you received. Probably starting from a pretty young age, certainly organized education, starting with kindergarten, going up for many of us through university. How much was the education exclusively cognitive or almost entirely cognitive? How many experienced that? You know, more mental, more, more knowing. How much was there teaching about how to develop love, right? Separate it out. Maybe we got that in our religious education if we experienced that. You know, and there was some learning about the body, but more like physical education, right? Can you see how that becomes such a, a strong conditioning to separate out the knowledge aspect from the emotions and from the body, very much there in our, in our education, in our methods of knowledge, in science, often a downplaying of the uh, emotions and their role in a good life, right? And I, we, we could take the whole time looking in that in more detail. How many people can relate to haven't experienced that, you know. And then there, there are a lot of uh, gender dimensions to that also, because to some extent with, uh, I would say, particularly with a lot of dimensions of patriarchy, who is identified with the mind? More men, right? Who is identified with emotions? Who carries the emotional life of the family, right? Again, in a conventional nuclear family, typically women. How many can relate to that and even know your own conditioning around that, right? And, you know, and there are all sorts of other ways that that gets manifested. And, uh, you know, I think 75% of psychotherapists are women carrying the emotional energy, right? And so there, there are very strong gender dimensions to this as well, right? at, least, at least in Western, Western culture. And there are also, this is going to be a little bit surprising, there's not the same exact kind of split in Buddhist tradition, but there is a split that we've inherited in the insight meditation world that tends to split off metta from wisdom. 
And has metta practice be a little bit more marginal, a little bit more on the side, not as integrated with mindfulness, not as integrated with wisdom? How does that occur? And we can actually trace how that happened pretty precisely. And we can connect it with a very influential text called the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification, from the 5th century, written in, I believe, in Sri Lanka, what's now Sri Lanka, by a monk named Buddhaghosa. I think he was a monk. And very influential text, particularly in much of Southeast Asia. In the Path of Purification, there's a very strict differentiation of different kinds of meditation. There's a differentiation into two types of meditation, one developing concentration and one developing insight and leading to awakening. The Buddha himself did teach those two forms of, of uh, meditation, concentration and insight, but with the historical Buddha, they were much more integrated. With Buddhaghosa, the Vasudhimaga, they become distinct. And interestingly, metta is placed in the concentration column as not leading to wisdom, but leading to concentration. Concentration is then helpful for wisdom, but it's not directly connected. If you want to read that text, you can read in more detail. There are a lot of valuable materials in that text. So that's from the 5th century. That text becomes the primary Bible, as it were, almost, for how metta practice occurs in Burma and in much of Southeast Asia. Where does metta practice originate in the West? It actually comes from Sharon Salzberg writing the first book on loving kindness, but before that, practicing in Burma, and coming back and teaching metta in the West. And I don't, I don't know if she was a, I don't think she was a card-carrying member of the Vasudhimaga Club, but the way, and I don't, it'd be interesting to interview her about this, I don't know all of her way that she framed it, but the uh, and I'm not really placing primary responsibility on her, but the way that metta developed in the West was generally not integrated with mindfulness practice. The mindfulness instructions, which also largely came out of Burma, coming from a teacher named Mahasi Sayadaw, with whom I personally studied, those instructions do not bring in metta as part of mindfulness instruction. 
they don't integrate metta with the teachings about wisdom. And the way that metta has been taught for a long time, probably up until around the year, maybe around the year 2000 or a few years before that, we didn't have metta retreats. They were just uh, basically mindfulness retreats. And metta was often taught. Initially, it was taught often briefly at the end of retreats, not integrated into the entirety of retreats. Probably the last 20, 25 years, it's been taught that we might do metta practice often in the afternoons, once a day. How many people have experienced something like that on retreats? That would be most common but not really integrated with probably with, with some exceptions of teachers, you know, integrating metta more. In other words, metta is, has become an adjunct to mindfulness practice. It can be helpful, but not integrated with mindfulness or wisdom. And again, having value in itself but not fully integrated with the other practices. In that sense, a separation between mindfulness and metta and between the core wisdom teachings and metta. Now, does that communicate the understanding that we actually find in the teachings of the Buddha? I would say no. And there have been people who have been exploring this more to help bring in more of an integration of metta and wisdom, but it's still at a fairly early place. And I'll refer to some people, those more in the Thai forest tradition, for example, The two main influences for Western insight meditation are the Burmese tradition, particularly coming out of Mahasi Sayadaw and his successors, and then the Thai forest tradition coming out of Achan Cha, particularly through Jack Kornfield. Been influential, but the main ways of practicing mindfulness have come out of the Burmese tradition. So there are different perspectives that we find both in the teachings of the Buddha and in other Buddhist traditions, particularly Mahayana, Vajrayana, which means Tibetan tradition, where in those traditions it's often said that the heart of the tradition is the connection of wisdom and compassion. And I'll I'll come back and talk about some of the ways that we find that integration in those later traditions. But I want to first point to how there is an integration in the original teachings of the Buddha, contrary to the way that metta has generally been taught in the West. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. So if we go back to the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's main discourse on metta, we find a connection of metta with both of the other dimensions 
of the entire training. You know, Buddhist training for the Buddha was in three areas, training in wisdom, training in meditation, and training in ethics, or how we bring it out into our lives, into the world. Those are the three areas. When we look to the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, we actually find a connection between Metta and ethics on the one hand and wisdom on the other. Listen to these passages. And the initial comments will be on the connection of Metta and ethics, and then later the connection of Metta and wisdom. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. Goodness is a metaphor for being ethical. And who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, or bringing in wise speech, peaceful and calm, and wise and skillful. The Metasutta. And at the end, might by not holding to fixed views, that's an aspect of wisdom, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from attachment to all sense desires. Again, the key there is the attachment or the grasping. We still have sense desires, but we increasingly work to avoid the grasping and the attachment. There are other passages where it's very clear that metta leads to wisdom. There's a beautiful passage where the Buddha comes to a group of monks who hang out together all the time. And they're called the Anarudas. There's a senior monk named Anaruda, and the Buddha comes up to the two, uh, the senior monk, Anaruda, and says, basically says, you all look like you're having a good time. Not, not a literal translation. You all having a really good time. How do you do it? You look like you're really pretty mellow together. How do you, how do you accomplish that? The Buddha says, how is it that you Anarudas, because they all have the same name, they take the name of the senior monk. How is it that you Anarudas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as a blending of milk and water, regarding each other with the eye of affection? And the senior monk Anaruda says, we have developed metta with regard to body, speech, and mind. And then says, we actually have diverse bodies, but we only have one mind and heart. This has been accomplished by metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. So there's a sense of deep metta, and we might say a very full manifestation of one of the core wisdom teachings about there not being a separate self, ultimately. The teaching of not-self. That that has been accomplished through the practice of metta, which of course makes sense, right? We develop a sense of warmth, of friendliness, and this leads to much more of a sense of interconnection. It's one of the ways that we practice to develop not-self. It's pretty commonsensical in that way, right? 
And that'll, you know, we'll come back to that because that'll be one of the main ways that we see that the heart practices and the wisdom practices are deeply intertwined and related. That as we practice metta, loving kindness, compassion in a deep way, we often have more of a sense of interconnection, of not being so different, of not preferring my own well-being so much over that of others. You know, going into the teaching of not-self. Something probably very much we may have experienced with the radiating metta, where we have that sense of the metta going over a whole field, leading to a sense of interconnection. When we have how many people felt more of a sense of interconnection in the radiating metta, as you had a sense of it just going over the space around you, the people around you, how many people felt some more of that sense of connection? So it's not it's not uh, not rocket science, as they say. I've never studied rocket science, so I don't know whether it's actually very easy, but we, we, we talk like that, right? Okay. So, um, interestingly, also, we find a lot of passages in the early text that point to the interconnection of wisdom and metta. There's a, a book that I, I didn't bring up last time that is actually very helpful for exploring this. Some of you may know this. It's by the Venerable Analeo, and it's called Compassion and Emptiness. And he doesn't make all of the points that I'm making, but the... In the, in the book, there are a lot of passages where we can see a connection of wisdom and metta. And generally, what we find in the tradition, and I, I think I'll read maybe two passages, is that there is a kind of wisdom that develops from metta that is sometimes called an immeasurable wisdom or a vast wisdom very much linked to the kind of wisdom that comes from the radiating metta that we did. And there's also a kind of wisdom that develops more from the, uh, the wisdom teachings, like the Four Noble Truths. So um, the Venerable Analio gives some of these passages. I thought I'll read one that I learned from him, and then I'll read one other one. Again, this is from uh, one of the early discourses of the Buddha. And you'll hear him talking, the Buddha talking about two kinds of wisdom. One is called penetrative wisdom, at least in the translation. That one is connected with the wisdom teachings. And the other one in the translation is called vast wisdom or immeasurable wisdom, which we can really relate to the radiating metta or radiating compassion. So listen to this passage. If one has heard that this is dukkha, that's the first noble truth, and through wisdom rightly sees dukkha as it really is, 
if one has heard of the arising of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, the path to the cessation of dukkha, though that's naming the second noble truth, the third noble truth, the fourth noble truth. And with wisdom, moreover, rightly sees the path to the cessation of dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering. I like to translate the main meaning, as many of you know, as reactivity. If one rightly sees the path to the cessation of dukkha as it really is, then in this way, one is learned, one is learned with penetrative wisdom. They're basically saying, if one follows the core teaching, of the Four Noble Truths, and we could add some of the other teachings. If one follows any of the wisdom teachings and becomes more wise, this is called penetrative wisdom, wisdom through the core teachings, we might say. But he says there's a second form of wisdom which comes from the heart practices. Again, very different from what we have with uh, the Vasudhimaga. So here is relating more to the heart practices. If one does not think of harming oneself, does not think of harming others, does not think of harming both, and in, instead thinks of benefiting others, so coming from loving kindness, compassion, benefiting many people out of compassion and for the affliction in the world, seeking what is meaningful and of benefit for all, seeking their ease and happiness, then in this way, one is bright, intelligent, and with vast wisdom, sometimes translated as a measurable wisdom. Isn't that interesting that one can see that uh, there are these two forms of wisdom that come in these different ways. So metta is not, or compassion, or the other heart qualities, not fundamentally different. And I thought I'd read one other passage that says, shows something very similar. The Buddha asked the question, the measureless liberation of mind and heart, that's what we've just been talking about, the liberation of heart and mind by nothingness, that's a kind of a wisdom liberation, the liberation of mind and heart by emptiness, and the signless liberation of mind and heart. The last ones of those are more through wisdom teachings. Are these different in meaning and also different in phrasing, or are they one in meaning and different only in phrasing? And he says, there is a method by which these things are different in meaning and also different in phrasing, And there is a method by which they are one in meaning and different only in phrasing. He goes on to say that the liberation, that the liberation of uh, mind and heart that is called measureless is, uh, let's see, that they are actually the same, but only different in phrasing. He goes on to say that the two forms of wisdom 
are ultimately the same in meaning, but different in phrasing. And so, for me, this is these are really important uh, texts, and we find we can find similar passages and teachings in the later traditions that we call Mahayana and Vajrayana, some of the Tibetan teachings. It's expressed often as this unity of wisdom and compassion. And compassion is really shorthand for all the heart qualities. This is from the Tibetan tradition. Dromtompa, this is from the end of the 19th century in Tibet from uh, uh, a teacher named Pacho Rinpoche. Dromtompa once asked Atisa, a teacher, what was the ultimate of all teachings? The answer, of all the teachings, the ultimate is emptiness of which compassion is the very essence. So em emptiness, again, somewhat of a tricky or es sometimes esoteric teaching, but taken to be the heart of the wisdom teachings uh, really related to the sense of lack of separation between beings and the way that there is a complete um, interweaving and connection of all beings and all things in our mind that makes separation is more superficial than the mind that can see unity. That's a very brief way of talking about it. And so he says... The ultimate teaching connects compassion and emptiness. It is like a very powerful medicine, which is, can cure every disease in the world. A scholar of uh, Tibetan tradition, Reginald Ray, says, genuine compassion, driven solely by the needs of the other, requires a mind of emptiness. But emptiness also implies compassion, since to be truly empty means to be without any self-preoccupation, and thus expresses itself naturally and spontaneously in warmth towards others. A realization of emptiness in which one is not completely available to others is not a genuine realization. In other words, if we really truly develop wisdom, it's going to manifest in compassion. And in fact, I think about how it was understood, for example, that the whole reason for the Buddha teaching and even giving wisdom teachings was because of his compassion. He wouldn't have given wisdom teachings unless he was motivated by compassion. Another pointer to the unity of that. Are you convinced yet? <laughs> how are you doing? Or how many people are convinced I could stop right here and you say wisdom and compassion are connected, right? That's, that's the point I'm, I make. I'll just say a few more things, then we'll open it up to discussion. Um, one of the interesting uh, passages that I found uh, actually just in the last few days was uh, finding that... Uh, there are actually instructions for being a teacher. If one's teaching out of compassion and the people one's teaching don't seem to be open, and in fact, if they're 
not really interested in the teachings, then compassion has to be connected with wisdom in the form of equanimity. So it's a teaching, this is a, a teaching for any teachers who are teaching and it doesn't seem to be well received. Then you bring in wisdom and in the form of equanimity, which is uh, my, the, one of the lines for equanimity is no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. So wisdom and compassion can even manifest in the teaching role. You offer what you have and let it be what it is. Okay. And probably not so different with parenting, right? Or all sorts of other forms of teaching. So how do we, you know, what are the implications of what I've been saying for our practice? Because that's really my, my interest, right? What are the implications of the deep connection of metta, compassion, and wisdom for the way we practice? Might this lead to changes in the way we practice? And I would say yes, it would lead to changes in the way we practice. Very, very crucial. You know, and in fact, uh, I mentioned that some of those coming out of the Thai forest tradition don't segregate metta in the same way. This is from uh, um, Achan Amaro, who used to be on the Spirit Rock Teachers Council and has been a monk in the tradition of Achan Cha, the Thai forest tradition. This is what he said about teaching metta. I don't like to teach loving-kindness or metta as a separate feature of spiritual practice. I find that it's far more skillful to cultivate loving-kindness as a background theme, as a kind and loving presence that informs and infuses every effort that is made in our spiritual training. The way that we pick up any aspect of the training needs to have this quality of loving-kindness in it. So whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's on an everyday basis or a uh, formal meditation basis, how do we infuse what we're doing with metta? One way to do this, I'll, I'll mention, this will be the last part of my talk, I'll just mention a few ways that we can explore this. One would be to do radiating metta a lot. These days, it's actually my personal foundational practice. And I try to practice it several times a day, right? And then bring it out into uh, other activities. Radiating metta can be a beautiful way to bring the quality of metta into work, into being with others. Again, it's easier to practice it maybe at a meeting where you don't have responsibilities, something like that or situation where you don't have to do much or say much. You can practice it in meetings, public transportation, something like that. Just hanging out, bring it into your meditation. Do metta practice before you do mindfulness practice. At least maybe for 10 minutes. And invite the metta to infuse the mindfulness practice. And don't have to try too hard, just uh, do the metta practice and then try to have, could maybe have that energy of the heart. And don't have to focus too much, do the mindfulness in the ordinary way, but invite the infusion 
of mindfulness with metta practice. Maybe use the line from Sylvia Borstein, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet this moment as a friend. We can also, when we're doing metta practice, realize that mindfulness is completely integrated with our metta practice. In other words, we need to be mindful of when we get distracted, right? We need to know when we're distracted, come back, realize that metta and mindfulness are closely integrated. And to see that, very, very crucial. You know, as we bring metta to particular beings, you know, maybe like we did in our group practice, uh, right after the silent meditation, maybe I bring metta to someone who is uh, having a hard time. And maybe I see, you know, maybe it can connect with some of the wisdom practices. Maybe I have a sense of some of the reasons why there's a hard time there for, for that person. Or, you know, I might bring in the quality of impermanence. It's a hard time now, but maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll change. So metta can be infused with understanding impermanence. You know, maybe understanding the lack of separation. When my friend has pain, I also have a kind, can kind of have a kind of pain if we're interconnected, right? And so the metta can really be linked with seeing some of these deep wisdom teachings about interconnection, lack of separate self, impermanence, uh, dukkha, and so forth. So I'll close with a poem and then a passage. And the poem is from uh, Gary Snyder. And this is a poem that he wrote right after April 2001, after the uh, uh, Taliban in Afghanistan uh, destroyed some Buddha images which had been around for like 2,000 years or more. How many people remember that? You know, the destruction of the Buddha images there. And he received a communication, I think from a Buddhist scholar who, who said, why are you so worried about uh, destruction of these images? Isn't everything impermanent? <laughs> right? And Gary Steiner is going to come back and talk about the, in, the integration through, you know, not He's not going to directly say this, but the integration of understanding impermanence with compassion and metta. And he's going to quote a haiku written by uh, Isa, I think at the beginning of the 19th century, after Japanese haiku writer, after Isa's son died as a very young child. And he wrote a haiku Quoting from the Diamond Sutra, the Diamond Sutra says, remember, everything is impermanent. Everything is like a dew, a dew drop at dawn, you know, like a star in the morning. Everything will pass. And Isa tried to reconcile the teachings on impermanence with the loss of his son. Okay, so here's the poem. April 2001, from a man who writes about Buddhism. Dear Gary, well, yes, about the statues, about the Buddha statues. 
But the manifest dharma is intrasamsaric and will decay. A little bit overly erudite, scholarly, etc. He says, the dharma is intrasamsaric and will decay. Snyder responds, I said, ah yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. That's Isis' poem. And then Gary Snyder ends, and yet is our perennial practice, and maybe the heart of the Dharma. And then close with a passage from a great yogi named Nisargadatta from the 20th century. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at. And I experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call the capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You can call it what you want. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Since at any point of time and space, I can be both the subject and object of experience, I express it by saying I am both. I am both love and wisdom, and I am neither, and I am beyond both. Whoa, so let's sit quietly for a minute or two and just see what reverberates for you. See what maybe had most meaning for you or most impact. See if there's something you want to ask. Question of clarification. Some other question. Question of sharing. Remembering that, again, the, the larger point of the talk is to find ways to integrate metta and wisdom, and more broadly, the heart practices and wisdom in our in our practice, in our formal practice, and in our daily lives. Let's go first to Liz and then to Viv, please. Hi, thank you for this tremendously important topic. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. You are, you are radicalizing our current practice. Uh, so in the Satipatthana Sutta and dependent origination, two very important concepts and um, practices, the heart and mind are separate. Heart and emotions. I mean, mind and emotions are separate. And the Satipatthana Sutta is what everybody is learning these days or focusing on. But also I want to point out, and you, you, may, you might want to challenge that, but Jack's first big book 
years ago, I was living in a monastery in Nova Scotia, and everybody yeah. was tremendously excited about Jack's new book. That's how I came across Jack in a monastery in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Um, it's called A Path with Heart. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. That's pretty important. And I want to also say the, the, uh, this, this is, some of this is occurring because Jack and, and, uh, uh, our friend whose name I've just forgotten. Tara, Tara Brock. Back. Yeah. No, uh. Trudy? The one who wrote the book on, on, uh, when who went to, Sharon. Sharon and Jack went to Burma and brought all of this stuff back with them. And, and Jack was a therapist, so I think that the influence of therapy also, of psychoanalysis, which of course is new in, in terms of years in the history of the world, has, plays an important part in this. And the fact that we can look at other cultures and other practices so easily on the internet and learn, and learn what's common, the need for metta, the need for loving kindness is a common humanity, which is a phrase the the study of compassion now, like Christian now, and therapists are bringing, the, the practice of compassion talks tremendously about common humanity. Yeah. So the need, uh, very, very important. So I want to, I'm noticing my sense of timing and history. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this probably couldn't have happened before. And, um, yeah. I'm Liz, let me, if, if you can bring your comments to a close, just to give time for others. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah, in terms of what you were saying, first of all, the separation of mind and heart in those texts, that actually uh, is a little bit tricky because in the Buddhist languages, there's a different breakdown of what the parts are of human experience. In the West, the dominant model is threefold. Sometimes it's just mind and body, but generally, you know, you go back to Plato, it's threefold. It's something like mind, emotion, and body, you know, which actually parallels the way that neuroscientists tell us the brain is organized, you know, little footnote. But in the actual Buddhist text, in the Buddhist languages, there's a twofold distinction not threefold. There's actually no word in Pali or Sanskrit that would translate as emotion, believe it or not. And, and so in the translations, when they translate in the translations of the Satipatthana Sutta or other texts, and when the translation translates the word citta, C-I-T-T-A, as mind, I think it's a bad translation. It should be, that's why if you heard me actually giving some readings, I actually changed some of what I was reading where the word chitta translates as, is translated as mind. I substitute mind and heart because strictly speaking, the word chitta includes what we would call the mind, thoughts, but it also includes emotions, what we would call emotions. And so the actual text uh, doesn't separate those, but rather, uh, but the translations can be very confusing. Even the very word mindfulness is confusing. 
No, I think it would be way better to have a different translation. Yeah, and then in terms of uh, compassion coming more to the fore with some of these different uh, teachings, like on self-compassion, really, really crucial. Or Jack has always had this emphasis on path with heart or the wise heart. He brings those together. Um, uh, and he has a strong emphasis on that. Then the question is, how much is there a really an integration that follows that perspective? You know, and I, I was actually, I was thinking of just going through the book and seeing how much that's more of his title and how much it infuses the whole book, right? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question that can be answered pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Liz. Thanks for your enthusiasm for wisdom and it's, metta and compassion it, together. It's, it's so exciting, and I'm so glad you're doing it. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Uh, Viv, please. I have a question. Um, so you're bringing up a lot of things that are counter to what's already been said. I want to know if you have already or intend to become part of the public discussion, like by writing a book or articles, um, you know, putting out this point of view that you have. It, it's been fascinating. I mean, yeah. I'm just on the edge of my seat the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for the encouragement. You, you know, to be honest, I just came up with these ideas and these, you know, I'd had this perspectives, you know, in 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 its fundaments, but really being as articulate as I've been in the last two weeks is is new. It's only really it really came after this meta retreat, which just ended two weeks ago. So what I've developed here really is is pretty fresh. And I've had encouragement for putting it into print and I actually talked yesterday with one of the guiding teachers who encouraged me to teach on it and make, you know, get it out there uh, at Spirit Rock, have a, a whole program on this. And I'm, you know, so thank you for your encouragement. You're but, welcome. But it's new and I, I don't have concrete plans and I have another book I'm trying to finish first. <laughs> so, but thank you. It, it's, exci well, it's exciting. And what I like is that it's both the perspective really can shift in very positive ways our practice, and that it also goes against deep conditioning in the culture. That's also really, really important. Yeah. Thank you, Viv. And so others, you can either use the raised hand function or just raise your hand. I can see you if you... Uh, Barbara, please. Hi, Donald. Hi. Good to see you. <laughs> okay, good to see you too. Um, someone over my head. I certainly don't have the historic background, but I I like to think of. I turn off the. Sorry, uh, Barbara. Like maybe turn off your video. You're for, a little distorted. For me, and you not, can tell not me this so is wrong. Is turn off. Yeah, your uh, your voice has been distorted. Maybe oh, it's not a good internet connection or something. But I haven't been hearing you clearly. I think we haven't been hearing you clearly. And but do your best, or maybe be is that brief. Better? Yeah. yeah, that's better. 
Okay. So, in the most simplest, probably first grade terms, what I'm coming away with today is keep my heart and my mind close together. Beautiful, yeah. And that is kind of the picture I'm thinking of when I'm disturbed, ask my heart what's going on. And if I have to figure out and make a decision, go back into my heart or vice versa. So keeping them close together yeah, beautiful. is a way to walk yeah, in the world. Yeah, very nice way to talk about it. And it can be something, you know, that kind of perspective. Keep the mind and heart, and we could also add in the body. But for right now, talking particularly about the mind and heart, keep them close together and uh, find ways of doing that, both in the formal meditation and in daily life. And so it could be in, you know, in some of the ways I outlined in terms of the formal meditation, in terms of daily life, it could be like you say, I'm having, you know, my mind is spinning around around some issue. Let me do some meditation, get more quiet, see what my kind heart says and ask. Let me see what my heart says. And it could be when, you know, my heart uh, gets, uh, you know, has some perspective and I say, is that really integrating as fully as I want my wisdom? What does my wisdom say? And come from the heart place and say, what does my wisdom say? That could, you know, something like that could be very, very concrete, specific way of bringing it into daily life. But beautiful way of saying it, Barbara. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you for your encouragement for this topic. And how many of you would like me to write something on it? <laughs> okay, publicize it. Okay, not everyone. Okay, maybe. Yeah, but I, some of you have enough reading, right? Okay, uh, maybe the talk was enough. Uh, okay, I see some people saying no. But anyway, uh, but thank you for the um, encouragement. And let's finish in our usual two ways. First, just to bring to mind your intention coming out of our gathering. How might you, if it resonated with you, how might you bring what we explored today and maybe last time into your practice, into your daily life? What intentions do you have going forward? And then closing with the dedication of merit, may our time together be of value for us, be beneficial for us, be beneficial for those in our lives, and then beyond our own lives and those in our own lives, may we offer the benefits to all beings coming out of compassion and wisdom May the benefits of our time together be offered to all beings for their freedom, for their liberation, for their benefit.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. And feel free, if you wish, to unmute and say goodbye. And I'll say goodbye to everyone in, a, in my movement thank way. Thank you, John. Thank you, Carlita. Thank you. Thank you. Let's thank Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Much love. Bye. Thank you so much. Yeah, Hi, Carlita. Hi, Liz. Good to see you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank, thank you, Donald. Bye, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Thank bye you, bye. Carlita. Thank you so much. Thanks for your enthusiasm, yeah. Liz. Keep, keep <laughs> on with this. Very important. Yeah. Thanks, Carlita. Till next time. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.